Well, good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's good to see all of you here this morning. If you don't know who I am, my name's Jason, and it's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. If you're a first-time visitor with us this morning, welcome. We're thankful that the Lord has brought you here to worship with us. Let's turn now to the all-important eternal word of the Lord as we find it in the 119th Psalm. Psalm 119, we'll be looking at verses 137 through 144. The 18th stanza, the Sade stanza, there are 22 stanzas in this psalm, each representing a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so we are drawing near the end. This has been such a wonderful time for us as your pastors as we've studied the word. We hope it's been beneficial and we're confident it has been because the Lord uses his word to strengthen and encourage his people. But I'm going to read for you this stanza in its entirety. Before I do that, I remind you, as always, that what you're about to hear read is the word of the living God. And so may he be pleased to add his blessing to the reading of it. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Your promise is well tried, and your servant loves it. I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is righteousness forever, and your law is true. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we praise you for your word is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. And so we ask, Lord, that you would now teach us from your word, for it is our heritage forever and the joy of our hearts. So incline our hearts, we ask, to perform your law forever, even to the end. Uphold us, we pray, according to your promise that we may live and let us not be put to shame in you, our hope. We ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and for his sake, amen. Well, any time is a good time to reflect upon the righteousness of God but I think it's a particularly appropriate and helpful to reflect upon the righteous character of God when our enemies are seemingly triumphing over us. It's particularly helpful. It's particularly appropriate when our enemies seem to have the upper hand in their attempts to destroy us. Why? Because as we meditate on God's righteous character and nature, what are we reminding ourselves of? We're reminding ourselves of the reality that God promises, and this is in line with his character, that he will distinguish between us and our enemies. He is a just judge, and so he will condemn our enemies and deliver us. That's what we're reminded of when we reflect on God's righteousness, when our enemies seem to be triumphing over us. Great example of this from history comes to us from the pen of Edward Gibbon, in his classic work that is very long, called The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman History. And in that work, in a very short space, he chronicles for us 
one of the Byzantine emperors who served, Emperor Maurice. He had about a 20-year reign. He spent most of his life serving as a general. And then when that career came to an end, he was tapped on the shoulder to serve as emperor. And knowing war, he was often engaged in war. And so his subjects charged him with warmongering. And a coup formed. And his subjects rebelled against him. There was an uprising. And tragically, he was executed in 602 AD. But what makes it even more tragic, heartrending indeed, is that before he himself was executed, his five sons were murdered before his eyes. One after another, cut down before him. Can't imagine a more difficult thing to behold. And what Gibbon records for us is that with each stroke of the sword that cut off these future heirs, but more importantly, his kindred, his offspring, with each stroke, each life lost, what Emperor Maurice cried out was Psalm 119, verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Why was he doing that? He was doing that, first of all, to cry out to the Lord in prayer. And he was also doing that to remind himself, Lord, I know I'm in the right. And so though I am unjustly being persecuted and suffering at the hands of my enemies, and I know my life will soon end, Lord, I entrust them, my sons, and myself into your hands, to you, the one who is righteous, to you, the one who judges justly. And brothers and sisters, I want us, God wants us to be equipped with the same mindset in our darkest hour. Can you imagine a more difficult thing to face? I can't. I was almost moved to tears just reading about this. And yet this didn't just happen at the last minute. I can assure you that Emperor Maurice was meditating on that scripture and meditating on this reality of God's righteousness long before this moment came. And so what this stanza does, brothers and sisters, is it equips us to reflect and meditate on God's righteousness that we might respond this way in the face of our enemies' persecutions and hatred. And there are three truths that we're going to look at in this stanza. Three truths. First of all, we're going to see that God is righteous. That God is righteousness himself. He does not receive righteousness from someone or something outside of himself. No, he is righteousness. And he gives righteousness, we'll see. But that's the first important truth that we need to understand is that God is righteous. Second of all, and closely related to the first point, because God is righteous, guess what? God's word is righteous. Why? Because God's word is a reflection, a mirror of him. In God's word, we have him speaking to us. And so in all that God does, and all that God says, it's in line with his righteous character. So therefore, we know that even as God is righteous, his word is righteous. And thirdly, amazingly, gloriously, is the reality that because God is righteous and his word is righteous, his servant will be righteous. God's servant is righteous. Why? Because when he calls us into that covenant of grace with him, by grace through faith, we begin to reflect his character more and more and more. And so again, what is my hope in this? Why has the Lord given us this scripture that we might be equipped to meditate on his righteousness, 
to the end that when our enemies triumph over us, we're able to appeal and trust ourselves to the one who judges justly. May God be pleased to use his word to that end. Let's look first then at how God is righteous. Look at verse 137 with me. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. So again, what do we see here? As David is being oppressed by his enemies, as we see happens again and again all throughout this psalm, he's meditating upon the character and nature of God. And specifically, he's meditating on God's righteousness. And he says, Lord, you are righteous. Now, we need to slow down because righteous is not a word that gets used a lot in our culture, is it? It's maybe used sometimes in slang. Like, man, that was righteous. I don't know, do they still say that? Anyway, we do at some point. But you don't hear it usually in many other contexts. So what do we mean when we're talking about God being righteous? Well, I want to step back and answer the question, not because we can jump from the human to the divine, but I do think that this helps us understand what we mean when we say that God is righteous. When we say that a human being is righteous, what do we mean? We mean that that person, their life is in line with God's word, with God's law. They're walking in line with what God has revealed to us in our consciences and in his word about how we're to live before him. And so when we say someone is righteous, they walk in accord with God's word. Okay, let's now take that to God. This is problematic because what's the standard by which you judge God? There is no standard. God is the standard because he is righteousness. And so when we talk about God being righteous, what we mean is that everything that he says and he does is in line with his perfect, morally perfect character and nature. Everything that he does. And so that's why we get to the reality that he is the judge. He can by no means clear the guilty because he's a just, righteous God. And so that's what we mean when we say that God is righteous. But there's, this text shows us that God is uniquely righteous. I want to emphasize that again and again. And the commentators bring this out when they say that we can translate verse 137 as you, you alone are righteous. You, Yahweh, alone are righteous. He's saying you alone are God, and so you alone are divinely righteous. Righteous in and of yourself. The source, the fountainhead of all righteousness. God doesn't receive righteousness from anybody else. He gives righteousness. And you can only be described as righteous insofar as you've received righteousness from him or participate in his righteousness in some way, shape, or form. And so this is what we mean when we say that God is righteous in and of himself. David drives home this point a little bit further in verse 142. Jump down there with me. Look at 142. Your righteousness is righteous forever. And your law is true. Notice the emphasis here. He says, your righteousness is righteous. Okay, isn't that a bit of a circular argument? Your righteousness is righteous. He's trying to emphasize for us that God is really, truly, gloriously righteous. In the Hebrew, that, those two words for righteous that we translate are right next to each other. Lord, your righteousness is so righteous that we have to put righteousness in front of your righteousness. <laughs> That's how glorious you are in your character. And David's saying, you're infinitely, eternally righteous. You didn't start being righteous at some point in time. And you'll never end being righteous because you are eternal. You're not like a man that you should change. 
You are the same yesterday, today, and forever, for you are the one who was and is and is to come. You are eternally, infinitely righteous. And so here we have David just reveling in this reality of God's character. Why? Because his enemies are triumphing over him. And so he's reminding himself, Lord, though everything in my life seems to contradict the reality of your righteousness, I know that this is true. I know that you will separate the sheep from the goats. I know you will distinguish me from my enemies, perhaps not in this life, but at the end of all things. And so David's rejoicing in this, which is really quite stunning, isn't it? That he's rejoicing in this reality. Because we need to realize that in our fallen state, before we're believers, in Adam, this is not good news. This reality of God's righteousness is not something that we rejoice in naturally in our fallen state. Why? Because we're not righteous. We are unrighteous. And we're never more aware of that than when we reflect on the perfect righteousness of God himself, the creator and sustainer and sovereign of all. Now, God didn't create us that way. The scriptures are clear that before the fall, he created Adam and Eve in true righteousness and holiness. And yet what happened after the fall? After they tragically ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they're plunged into unrighteousness. And that guilt is imputed to us. And we are conceived fallen and unrighteous before a holy, righteous God. And so what do we deserve for our unrighteousness? What must a righteous God, who is a just judge, who can by no means clear the guilty, what must he give to us as our just due for our sin, for our rebellion, for our unrighteousness? His wrath, his eternal wrath for our sin, for our unrighteousness, for all eternity. Objects of his anger. God is righteous. This is what he will do. But there's good news too. That's the bad news. But the good news is that God has shown grace and mercy in giving his son, sending the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, to fulfill all righteousness. Isn't that why Jesus says he came? The son assumes a human nature, body and soul. And when he goes to be baptized by John the Baptist, John says, you come to be baptized by me? I need to be baptized by you. And what does Jesus say? I have come to fulfill all righteousness. God is showing that he is righteous in the righteous provision of his son. On what basis were all the Old Testament saints saved? On the basis of God's righteousness being manifested in the gift of his son, Jesus, who fulfilled all righteousness by perfectly obeying the law in all the ways that we have failed to. So that righteousness is then imputed to us and we're counted as righteous in God's sight. And then what happens on the cross? God puts his righteousness on display. And he says, listen, I'm not winking at sin here. I'm not saying it's okay that you're sinful. Come on into my kingdom. I'll lower my standard of righteousness. No, God cannot do that. All that he does, all of his judgments are in line with his righteous character. And so what is he doing? He's saying the two options are that you either suffer for all eternity for your sins or a surety, a guarantor, a mediator, a substitute does that in your place. And here he is. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing on that cross. 
experiencing the fullness of the wrath of God for your unrighteousness, brother and sister, and mine. The Father imputes that to him. He pays that penalty in full. And what is upheld? The righteousness of God so that he is both just and the justifier of the ungodly. Behold the righteousness of God. We should be amazed at this reality, brothers and sisters, on our faces because that righteousness of God that we used to hate, we now love. Even as David loves here and rejoices in and rests upon, he puts his head upon it like a pillow. It's why he can sleep at night because he knows that the judge of all the living, the one who will judge the living and the dead, will distinguish between him and his enemies. And so he's looking to him. And brothers and sisters, we should be looking to our righteous God, rejoicing that though that righteousness was once bad news for us, it's glorious good news because he's provided righteousness for us in Jesus. And that fellowship that we lost in the fall has now been restored to us. And we should thank him for Jesus, who is our righteousness, so we can delight in the truth that God is righteous. But closely associated to this first truth that God is righteous comes the second truth that God's word is righteous. God's word is righteous. Look at verse 137 with me again. Righteous are you, O Lord. Therefore, what naturally follows is that right are your ways. What's he saying here? Well, that word right there in the Hebrew can be translated straight. Straight are your ways. What's he saying? All of your ways, Lord, all of your rules, all of your judgments, all of your providences, everything that you do, everything that you say, it is straight and in line with your character. Why? Because all that proceeds from God reflects his character. And that's what his word does. That's what all of his ways do is the point of verse 137. But then he's going to narrow it down specifically to God's word in verse 138. Look at verse 138 with me. You have appointed or commanded, you can translate that word commanded there as well, you have commanded your testimonies in righteousness and in all faithfulness. Well, where do we learn about God's testimonies? We learn about God's testimonies in his word, in his law, in his self-revelation, in scripture. And so God commands his law, and we know that all of his law, all of his scripture is in righteousness and faithfulness. It reveals God's righteousness and faithfulness, and it is righteous and faithful because God himself is righteous and faithful. And so when we behold the word of God, when we read it, when we study it, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, we behold God's righteousness and faithfulness, his character. It's like a mirror to us, reflecting to us, revealing to us who God is. David goes on to talk about how God's word is righteous in verse 140. Look there with me. He says, your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. What's he saying here? He's saying, Lord, your word is pure truth unadulterated. There is no error there. Why? Because you yourself are the truth. And since your word reveals who you are and you are the truth, your word itself is pure truth. And that language there of tried, this is metallurgy language. This is language, actually, let me read for you Psalm 12 verse 6 because this sheds some light on the kind of language that he's using here with the language of tried or well-tried. 
Psalm 12, verse 6 reads, The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined. That word refined there in the Hebrew is the exact same word as tried in verse 140. Exact same word. So we could say your promise is well refined and your servant loves it. But let me read the rest of Psalm 12, verse 6. In a furnace on the ground, it's like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. What's he saying? He's saying what a metallurgist does when they have a precious metal, gold for example, they put it in a furnace and they heat it and they cool it and they heat it and they cool it and they heat it and they cool it. And every time they do that, the impurities, the alloys in that metal rise to the top. The dross rises to the top and then the metallurgist scrapes it off. Scrapes off those impurities, lets it cool, does it again. Until when he puts it over the fire, there's no more impurities. We've got pure gold now. And what David is saying is, Lord, your word is pure. It doesn't need to be refined because there's no impurities there. There's no falsehoods there. There's no lies there. You can't lie. And so how could you in your word lie? And so David's saying, Lord, your word is pure truth because you are truth itself. And then lastly, in verse 144, the last thing David says about God's word is there. He says, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. He's saying God's testimonies, God's law, what he's commanded to us, what he's revealed to us in the word, it's righteous forever because God himself is eternally and infinitely righteous. God's word is what it is, in short, because God is who he is. And his word reveals to us who he is. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters. This word he has appointed for us as the means by which we commune and fellowship with him. And we can trust that word. It's testimonies, what it tells us about God, what it promises to us, what it tells us about ourselves, what it tells us about the world, what it tells us about history. We can trust and build our life, our world on the sufficient, inerrant, pure word of God, even as David did. Don't we see that all throughout Psalm 119? He just loves God's word. And he builds his life upon it. He banks on it. He trusts it. Why? Not as an end in itself, but because he knows this is the means that God has appointed for him to relate with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, brothers and sisters, this will mark us as well as God's people. We will love his word. We will study his word. We will meditate on his word. We will sing his word. We will pray his word. When our enemies have the upper hand and we don't know how this is going to work out, like Maurice, seeing his offspring slain, we will bank on the Lord's word, that he is righteous and that all his ways, as much as they may seem to contradict at times his character, we know that he is trustworthy. And how do we know that? Because he's inscripturated these realities in his word. And his word is righteous and his word is true and his word is everlasting because he is. So we've seen that God is righteous We've seen that God's word is righteous. And lastly, let's look at how God's servant is righteous. Because God is righteous and because his word is righteous, that means that we're going to be righteous as well. And when we talk about our righteousness, we need to distinguish, not separate, but distinguish our righteousness because we speak about it in two senses. Let's talk about both of these. 
First of all, when we're talking about our righteousness, we're talking about an imputed righteousness. We're talking about a righteousness that is not our own. That's what we mean, or that's what the theologians mean when you read them speaking about alien righteousness. They're not talking about extraterrestrials coming down from space and how righteous they are. That's not what it's about. It's about an alien can be used as a term for someone or something that's outside of you. And so when we talk about an alien righteousness, it's a righteousness that's not yours. It's somebody else's. And so here's the reality. Remember how I said you've got two options before God? You can either pay the penalty, you can try to fulfill the law perfectly, or you can have a substitute do it. That's exactly what Jesus does. He fulfills all righteousness on our behalf, perfectly obeying the law, perfectly fulfilling it, and then that righteousness that he has earned, that he has merited, the only person to ever exist who perfectly obeys God's law, God takes that righteousness and says it's yours. It's accounting language, banking language. It's as if you had an infinitely negative number, doesn't exist, but whatever, in your bank account, could never pay it back, and Jesus pays that debt and then gives you his infinite resources in your account. So now you're in the black. You're not only out of the red. He doesn't put you at zero. And then you got to earn your way. No, he gives you his righteousness. It's imputed to you. Now, that money's yours, but you didn't earn it, right? And that righteousness that's imputed to you from Jesus, by God, by grace through faith, that is now yours, though it is, was earned by him. It's counted as yours, your righteousness. And that's what we mean when we talk about imputed righteousness. Isaiah speaks of this so beautifully in Isaiah 53, that glorious chapter that's all about Jesus Christ, the Messiah. But I want to read to you Isaiah 53, verse 11. Here's what Isaiah says. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Now listen to this. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant. Who is the righteous one? Who is God's servant? Is it Adam? Was Adam the righteous one, his servant? No, nope, he ate of the fruit. Was Israel God's righteous one, his servant? Nope, they sinned again and again and again. Are you the righteous one, my servant? Am I the righteous one? No, we've failed as well. This is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfectly righteous one, the only servant of God who perfectly obeyed God's commands. And why did he do that? Listen to the rest of verse 11 in Isaiah 53. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. That's you and me. Christ's righteousness accounted, reckoned, imputed to us, and he shall bear their iniquities. He bore that wrath that we deserved on the cross so that we're forgiven for Jesus' sake and declared righteous for Jesus' sake. So that's the first sense in which we are righteous. We're counted as righteous in Jesus on account of his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. But there's a second sense that David spends a lot of time talking about here in this stanza that I want to call habitual righteousness. I don't want to call it actual righteousness because then that makes it sound like the other righteousness isn't real and what Rome perhaps calls a legal fiction. So I don't like that language in particular. I want to talk about a habitual righteousness or a personal righteousness. So in imputation, we're talking about justification, where you're declared righteous before God for Jesus' sake because of what he did. And then in this habitual righteousness, we're talking about sanctification, 
whereby grace through faith were conformed from one degree of glory to the next to God's righteous law, reflecting more and more the image of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This is the true righteousness and holiness that we were created with being restored to us by God's gracious working in us. And you see this just all throughout this psalm. So let's look together at how this habitual righteousness shows up in David's life and how it will also show up in ours by God's grace. Look at verse 139. David says, My zeal consumes me because my foes forget your words. Now we've already talked about this in this psalm, so I don't want to spend too much time here. But what David is talking about is he's saying, I'm like self-combusting. I'm imploding (laughs) because my zeal and my passion are so great for God's glory that I'm consuming myself. Why? Why is David all worked up here? It's because my foes forget your words. It's not like the foes that David has go, oops, I forgot God's law. I sinned again. I'll try to do better next time. That's not what they're doing. The language here is of disregarding. They're treating it like it's rubbish, like it's garbage, like it's trash to be set aside, thrown out. They're just disregarding it. And who are these foes? Again, we've argued this again and again throughout this series. These are covenantally unfaithful Jews. Those who are within the covenant community of God just completely disregarding God's law. And David is worked up about it. He's jealous for God's glory and for the good of God's people and image bearers. And brothers and sisters, the same will be true of us as God's servants. We will be jealous that God's word is obeyed by his people to his glory and for the good of his people and his image bearers. Second of all, we see this habitual righteousness in David's life in verse 140. Look there with me. David says, your promise is well tried and your servant loves it. So what's he saying? Well, we've already seen that David says God's word is pure. There's no error. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It's perfect. And so because that's true, because it reflects your character, Lord, I love your word. Whereas my foes disregard it as rubbish, something that can be forgotten or set aside, and I'm just going to do what's right in my own eyes and a law unto myself, David says, Lord, I don't view it as rubbish or dung. To me, it is precious. More precious than gold, more precious than diamonds, more precious than anything that this world has to offer. And so I've built my entire life upon it. And brothers and sisters, the same will be true of us. We will treasure God's word. We will want to understand it. We will want to live in line with it. We will see its beauty and excellencies because we'll be holding the glory of God himself. And so we will be marked by this love as God's righteous servants. Another evidence of David's habitual righteousness is in verse 141. Look there with me. David says, I am small and despised, yet I do not forget your precepts. What's he saying? Saying, Lord, I'm insignificant in the eyes of the world. The world doesn't have great estimation for me. As a matter of fact, they despise me. They scorn me. Wasn't that Emperor Maurice's situation as well? And yet, even though the world despises me and scorns me and thinks that my life can just be snuffed out like that, even in the face of that kind of persecution for my enemies, I don't forget your laws. I don't. I remember it. I love it. I obey it. I delight in it. Now, why is that significant? I think it's significant because if we're honest with ourselves, in the flesh, when the world despises us and doesn't esteem us greatly, or if at all, we're just forgotten by the world, 
There's a small part of us that wants to go, well, why don't we just kind of deviate off the path and maybe do a little something that'll get the world's attention, get a little applause from man? Aren't we all tempted in various ways to abandon the fear of God for the fear of man and the short-term praises, recognitions that those get us? We're tempted. I'm sure David was tempted at times. And yet by God's grace, what does he say? Lord, even though that's my situation and, and I can be tempted towards that, I have not forgotten your precepts. I walk in accord with them. I love them. Because better to be your friend, O Lord, and enemies with the world than the other way around. And even when we do stray and give in to temptation, what do we do by God's grace? As his righteous servants, we repent and we're thankful that our righteousness by which we're accepted before God is not our own, but the perfect, unchanging righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then we get back on the path. So this is another evidence of God's habitual righteousness in David's life that he's working in him, and he'll work in us as well. Another evidence is found in verse 143. Look there. He says, trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. What's he saying here? He's saying, Lord, in summary, I have suffering and anguish within because I have this struggle between the flesh and the spirit that every believer has, and I have trouble and anguish and suffering without. I have these enemies of the flesh and the world and the devil attacking me, these enemies, these circumstances, these other nations, and so I'm in suffering and anguish without and within, and yet I still delight in your word. Why is that important? Because again, in the flesh, what are we tempted to do when we're in the midst of suffering and anguish? We want to go to the delights of this world to numb and distract ourselves, don't we? Man, this reality that God has providentially, righteously brought into my life is too heavy. Let's tune it out with whatever your worldly, fleshly delight of choice. To numb it, to distract myself from it. And David says, Lord, I haven't given in to that temptation. Instead, I continue to delight myself in your word. Why? Because there I fellowship with you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are no greater delights than these delights that I was created to enjoy with you, fellowship with you, God, and with your people in the congregation. And so David's saying, I haven't abandoned that. And brothers and sisters, we won't either. Even in the midst of great suffering, whether it's without or within or both, we will continue by God's grace to delight in him and his word and fellowship with him and his people. And when we stray again, by God's grace, we will repent and get back on the path and rejoice that Jesus is our unchanging righteousness. But we will habitually grow in this way. Last way that we'll grow in habitual righteousness. Look at verse 144. David says, your testimonies are righteous forever. Give me understanding that I may live. What is David doing here? He's saying, Lord, I've beheld your righteous character. I'm meditating on it. I'm reflecting on it. It's glorious, the fact that you're righteous and that your word is righteous because it reflects your character and I want to reflect your character. But here's the thing, Lord. The only reason I've been able to do any of these things is by your grace. It's because you've given me understanding thus far and you're giving me understanding right now and I desperately need you to continue to give me understanding that I might rightly know your word, that I might rightly believe your word, that I might rightly trust and rest in your word and walk in accord with it. Lord, you must give me understanding. Why? That I may live because you are my life. 
Fellowship and communion with you, O Lord, is my life, which brings us all the way back to the very beginning of Psalm 119, doesn't it? Where David describes for us the blessed life. What is the blessed life? To know God and walk in covenant faithfulness with him. And we are completely and utterly dependent upon the grace of God for both of these things. And so here's the thing, brothers and sisters. We can know John pens this for us in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 29. We can know that since Jesus is righteous and we're united to him, we will practice righteousness as well. Listen to what John says in 1 John 2, 29. If you know that he, that is Jesus, is righteous, which he is. We know that, don't we? You may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. We have been born of him by God's grace, have we not? And so we will practice righteousness. Even in the face of our enemies cruelly attacking us. And brothers and sisters, isn't it true that through the majority of our life at various times and in various degrees, it sure appears like the flesh, the world, and the devil have the upper hand? Doesn't it appear that way? And so what do we need to do? We need to rejoice and meditate upon the fact that God is righteous in and of himself. And he gives righteousness to us in his son. And his word is righteous. And we fellowship with him through it. And he is making us righteous through all the losses and trials and temptations and all the oppression that we experience from our enemies. And so we can know that as he continues to sustain us and give us understanding, we will persevere until the end. Because all judgment has been given to Jesus the Son and he is going to come back to judge the living and the dead. We affirm that every time we say the Apostles' Creed, don't we? It's a precious truth for God's people that he will come and judge between the living and the dead. We will be declared righteous and not guilty for Jesus' sake and all those outside of Christ will be cast into hell and the righteousness of God will be put on display. And here's the glorious reality that Paul talks about, that he reflects on at the end of his life, before his enemies seemingly triumph over him with his execution. He says in 2 Timothy, and this is true for us as well, 2 Timothy 4 verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. To which we can only say, Maranatha, Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and keep us faithful until that day. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge that you are the one true living God, the one who is righteous, the one whose ways are righteous. We are brought very low before you and acknowledge our continued indwelling sin, even as those who are in Christ. And so we rejoice in Christ's imputed righteousness to us. We're thankful that he is the righteous one, your servant in our place, on our behalf. And we're thankful that you reveal your righteousness to us in your word and that you have not only imputed righteousness to us, but are making us more and more righteous every single day by your spirit. We pray that you would conform us to the image of your son and that we would tirelessly, relentlessly pursue the mission by your grace that you've left us with to proclaim your gospel to those who don't know you here in Bakersfield and to the farthest corners of the earth. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.